Well, as I said to my uh, prayer email list, I, I consider Sunday the best day of the week, and it's always good to be in God's house together. And I said in there, Sunday's the best day of the week, and not because it's Super Bowl Sunday. I, I will say that I'm glad we're finally at Super Bowl Sunday because I'm really tired of hearing how great Tom Brady is and how amazing he is. And I guess at this point, rooting for the Steelers won't do me any good. So I'm pulling for Atlanta today. But um, I did get an article about Tom Brady that was in the Sports Illustrated, and the whole thing talked about greatness and what does it look like to be great. And so I've been thinking about greatness this week, having read that article, and it was interesting that the text I've got today uh, addresses it. it uh, Jesus, in that text that we just heard from, uh, that Luke read for us, says that whoever does his word and teaches others will be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is here speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, and he he understandably is being questioned about his views of God's commands. Jesus' teaching, his, his way was unusual. His education was not the typical one that a rabbi of that day would have had. His teaching, in some places, explicitly denounced other things that rabbis were teaching. And maybe most flagrant, he was known as a friend of sinners. He hung out with those who were notoriously broken on the margins, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, these people who society pushed aside. And so one could make a conclusion that Jesus doesn't care about God's law. He's rejected the Torah. He has cast it aside. But then here in the Sermon on the Mount, as he's speaking to his followers, he clarifies something. He says, don't think I've come to to reject it. Don't think I've come to cast aside God's law. I have not done that, but I've come to fulfill it, to fulfill it. I want to ask the question this morning, what should we do with the rules of God? The whole scripture, all of the commandments, the Old Testament, it's helpful to think, what should we do with the Old Testament? There are a couple of different things that people do with God's commandments. Um, One is that some try to earn salvation with those commandments. They see it as the rules. If you do this, then you're guaranteed to receive salvation. Uh, eternal glory in heaven. Do this. Here's, these are your marching orders. I think about the man who came to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus took him right to the Ten Commandments, although selectively so. Thou shalt not mer- murder, commit adultery. And he, and he highlighted a few that he knew this man was probably upholding. And he was happy to say, I've done all these. And then Jesus, of course, showed something about his heart and said, well, there's one thing you lack. Go and sell all that you own and come follow me, and then you'll have eternal life. And the reason Jesus went to that is he knew this man was breaking the first commandment because he loved money more than he loved God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so Jesus exposed that because the truth of the matter is you can't earn salvation by upholding the law. The law can't do that. It wasn't intended to for us. But many assume that. And Jesus reserved his harshest criticism for the Pharisees in his day and the scribes and the religious leaders who were really dedicated to God's law and had put together a lifestyle that was very externally in conformity with it. But Jesus said some really harsh things to them. And in this passage, he said something that is so confusing to some. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. For for the people to hear that, it would have knocked them back on their heels because if they thought, who are the most religious people? It would have been 
the Pharisees. They were the ones who externally looked the most holy. And he's saying they can't even get in the door. You've got to exceed that to get in the door. And then later in Matthew's gospel, in in chapter 23, Jesus comes down really hard on them and seven woes that he pronounces on the scribes and Pharisees. I'll just read you two of them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. This is Jesus speaking. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and an all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Then he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. And with such things, Jesus denounces their lifestyle because their heart on the inside wasn't right. Their righteousness was merely an external thing, a whitewashed tomb that's full of decay. So some think, I can uphold the law and then earn it. And Jesus soundly defeated that and said, that is not the way this works. Others look at the law and they swing the pendulum on the other side and they think, we can totally ignore it because it's all about grace. We are, we are saved by grace. It's just about what Jesus has done for us, and we don't need the law anymore because he's done it. It's no use, and they want to throw it away. I remind you of what James the Apostle said. He said, faith without deeds is dead. And so our deeds will reveal to us what we actually believe. They go hand in hand. Once we've been saved by grace, then we live into those deeds, into the law, and become that kind of person who looks on the outside like what Jesus has made us on the inside. And Jesus said some strong things for those who've been saved by grace, but then have rejected the law. And right here he says, whoever, in verse 19, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, you're in the kingdom of heaven, if that describes you, mind you, but least in the kingdom of heaven, because Jesus wants us to understand it's so important that we do what he says. If you love me, you will obey my commands, he teaches. Now, many see law and grace as opposites, like the law is bad and grace is good. And you might even quote John 1.17, where it says, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Christ. But that's merely a statement. It doesn't say the law is bad. It just describes something that is true. Moses delivered the law of God, and then Jesus took that and then brought grace and truth as well. And so it doesn't mean that the law is bad. It just describes how it came. The law cannot do for us what grace can do. For with grace, we can do the law, though. So because of grace, we can live into these things. Now, here's my main um, uh, proposal for you this morning. Jesus fulfilled the law so that we could obey it. He saved us. He fulfilled the law so that we could obey it. Now, I want to dig into Matthew 5, and you can, it's helpful to have the scriptures in front of you. If you want to get a, a, a pew Bible and turn there, Matthew 5, I don't remember the page number. Um, when Jesus is saying, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, the law and the prophets was the way that they referred to the entire, what we call the Old Testament. So the law, the prophets, the writings, all that is what he's referring to. Don't think that I have come to abolish it. The, the law of God could be grouped in three main categories. 
There is the moral law, like the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder, uh, love the Lord your God first, above all, don't have idols, all that, that, the moral law. Then there's the civil law, which would speak to how the nation of Israel functioned as a theocracy. It was a nation with God as the ruler, and there were rules for that. And then there were the ceremonial laws, the things that Israel was commanded to do so that they, as a sinful people, could have a relationship with a holy God. So the sacrificial system and things about worship and the tabernacle and then the temple. Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law. And he said, until heaven and earth pass away, which basically means never, forever and ever, not a single bit of the law will pass away. So he's fulfilled certain things and we then don't have to do them because Christ has done them for us. So I'm guessing no one has sacrificed uh, their, their Passover lamb this year or last year. I'm, so, I'm guessing that no one has brought a grain offering or sin offering or that you've not done any of that stuff. I'm guessing that you've not washed all your dishes according to the kosher, kosher laws. I'm even guessing that some of us had bacon this week, which would have been an unclean food according to the ceremonial laws. Now, Jesus declared all foods clean. Jesus became that sacrifice for us once for all on the cross, and he fulfilled the law in that sense. Furthermore, Jesus declared that Jews and Gentiles, that all people are blessed, and Jesus brought all people. He's, he's torn down the dividing wall of hostility. He's made one new people with Christ as the head. So it's not a theocracy anymore. And as this passage started out, you are salt and light in the earth. So his people are scattered throughout all the different nations. There's one new people who are to be salt and light in, the, in society. And as Romans 13 says, we're supposed to submit to the governing authorities over us. So the rules that were the civil law no longer apply to us. We don't have the right to execute people who've broken God's law. He's given the sword to the state, as Paul tells us in Romans 13. So that he's taking care of the civil part of the law. The moral part, of course, is still binding on us. That hasn't changed whatsoever. I like how um, the whole Bible is Christian scripture. And maybe you've not thought of that so much. One of my professors, a preaching professor I had this last summer, um, wrote a book on preaching, and he talks about grace. And he said, sometimes people think that grace just suddenly appears in the New Testament, but the Old Testament was all about law. And he said, it's like a jack-in-the-box. You know, remember the toy, you crank it, and you're like, when is it going to pop? Boom, and it pop, the jack pops out. It's, grace is not like, I'm reading law, 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 works, works, works. Boom, grace pops out of the Bible. Like, what? It's not like that at all. It's there from the very beginning. In Genesis, right after they sin, immediately God steps in and he says, there's a curse, and he says to the serpent that the offspring of man, you'll strike at his heel and he'll crush your head. Right from the very beginning, God makes skins for Adam and Eve who were, who were naked. He begins to serve them and love them and win them back. Grace is all the way through the scriptures. It always, grace always precedes the law. So my professor helped us um, as students think through each section of the scriptures and try and figure out how does this proclaim Christ? Because there's a temptation for people to do really, really bad exegesis and take something from the Old Testament and think, I know this is supposed to be about Christ because the Bible tells me that in the New Testament and my preacher's always saying that, so I gotta find a way. So they're like, okay, here's Noah and the ark and the ark was made with gopher wood and there's wood on the cross, so it's about Jesus. 
that is terrible. That is not, that is not what we're supposed to do. So what my professor suggested is, is he gave us four words, and he gave us the words prepares, predicts, reflects, and results. Look for those things, prepares. Sometimes the Old Testament is preparing us <clears throat> for Christ. Even back to, let's say, uh, Genesis 12, and I could pick a number of examples. Genesis 12 is where God brings the covenant to Abraham, and he explains a number of things, and the last of seven promises he gives to Abraham is this, and through your offspring, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. So somewhere down the descendant line of Abraham, there will be someone who will bring blessing to all the peoples of the earth. That is Jesus. It is preparing us in advance that there is going to be someone. Or Moses says in Deuteronomy 18, God will provide a prophet like me for you. Again, it's preparing us for Christ, the perfect prophet, to fulfill what Moses started, but perfectly. It predicts sometimes. So that's, I guess the, that's more of a prediction there, on the Deuteronomy 18. Or you can look at um, Isaiah 53, right? It's predicting this suffering servant is going to come. So it's, sometimes it's preparing God's people for something. Sometimes it's predicting it. Another time, it's reflecting. It reflects the issue of a holy God and a sinful people. So when we come to a text where we can't clearly identify how this is directly about Jesus, we ask two questions. And these are sort of lenses through which we can look at the Old Testament. One is, what does this teach me about the nature of a saving God? who loves people. And then the other question is, what does this teach me about the nature of fallen humanity who needs to be saved? And usually when we ask that question of the fallen focus, we can pretty quickly connect through how Jesus is going to solve that problem. How is Jesus the solution to the problem of that fallen condition of man? And then finally, the results of grace. So grace doesn't pop up like a jack-in-the-box. And look at the Ten Commandments. God starts the Ten Commandments with this. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. Therefore, have no other gods before me. So before he gives a commandment, he already saves them. He, he won them out of slavery in Egypt, went through the Red Sea, brought them into Mount Sinai, and then he gave the law. So grace always precedes the law. It's not the other way around. Here are the rules, live according to these rules, and then I'll be gracious to you. It doesn't work that way. It's the other way around. And so we look for these things in the scriptures as we read them. Now, what grace does, how, how it works, that Jesus fulfills the law so that we can obey it, is he changes us from the inside so that then outer works can flow. I began this morning with a call to worship by saying, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You've been renewed, remade on the inside. That was one of the prophecies of the Old Testament through uh, Ezekiel uh, 36 has it in there, that I will come and I will give you a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone so that we will obey his law. He'll write his law on our hearts. That's what the Lord does for us. So Jesus is saying our, our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and the only way for that to happen is for Jesus to do it by an inside job where we repent of our sins and come to him and then he transforms us. He changes our heart. I wonder, as we read that psalm this morning from Psalm 119, which is a very long psalm. We read just a very small portion. Um, the whole thing is about the law of God. I wonder, did it describe you? Do you delight in the law of the, war, of the Lord? If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. And one of those things that God does is he changes our heart to love his rules. 
Whereas before, before I was a Christian, I was a scoundrel. I didn't like God's rules. I resisted them. I thought it was a burden. I rejected it, whatever the rule was, right? The minute that I saw a law, my heart was inclined to want to break it. Just draw a line in the sand and sin will be incited to want to jump over that line. That's how my heart was. And yours was too. And if you've become a Christian, you know that that starts to change. So what the psalmist says is, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. So instead of seeing the law as something that steals life from us, we see the law as something that gives life. We, we, are, we are given a great life by obeying God's law. It, it actually helps us. It doesn't hold us down. It helps us become who we're supposed to be. So for those who think it's all about grace and not works, there are a number of texts in the New Testament that are very hard to reconcile. I'm thinking of, in particular, Colossians 3, where it talks about those who are in Christ and seeking Christ and how we have to put off the old self and put on the new. There's actually a list of things specifically, like hard things. It says, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. There's this list of things then, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, lust, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, it says. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. Then it says, but now you must put them all away. So we're supposed to put off the old self. And you say, well, but isn't that me saving myself? No. What happens is the Lord has already saved me. He's done a renewing work inside, and now he's saying, now bring the outside into conformity with the inside. And what most people think is, I've given my life to Christ. He's come and saved me. That was something he did. So I guess holiness will be an experience as well. I will wait here, and then God will make me holy. But it's not an experience. It's actually a habit. It's something we're called to work at. Because we're saved, now we can obey the law. Now we have to. Now we're called to. I love that movie, Bruce Almighty, and forgive me if I keep coming back to it. And by the way, if I talk about a movie, I'm not 100% endorsing it ever. There are things in every movie that I cannot endorse. But there's a really good scene in a coffee shop or a, a lunch place where the wife of Bruce is complaining because her husband's behavior has become so weird. And God's getting a hold of him, and there's, there's stuff happening. And, um, and, and she's complaining, and and the, the Morgan Freeman character who's playing God comes up to her and starts talking to her. He's just a stranger to her. And, and he says something really wise. He says, if God wants to teach, give you patience, he doesn't just give you patience. He gives you an opportunity to exercise patience, and then you grow in it. That's exactly how it works. Holiness is a habit. You don't just sit there and God fixes you. He changes your heart so you delight in his law. He gives you his spirit to help you. Mind you, you don't do this alone. You can't. We're walking with him. Jesus said, I, I will never leave or forsake you. I'm with you to the end of the age. So he then helps us to walk through this and presents opportunities for us to exercise the habit of holiness. In the late service today, we're recognizing our Boy Scout troop, and the, it's Scout Sunday, and I, I really like a number of things about the Scouts, and I've got here the, um, the Scout Oath, as we think about habits and reminding ourselves of what we're about, the scout oath says, on my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country and to obey the scout law, to help other people at all times and to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake and morally straight. 
I really like that. They are declaring what they're going to try and do. And I think something similar would be wise for us to say, I am a new creation in Christ. Jesus has fulfilled the law for me, so I can now obey it. And with his power and in his spirit, I will now do my best to become holy like he is. I mean, the command of the Lord is be holy because I am holy. Leviticus eleven forty four says that. So we are expected to step into this. Now, I want to invite you to check yourself this morning. These are some questions I came up with just as I was reading through this topic this week. In your secret thoughts, in that secret place, by the way, character is what you do when no one is looking. So in that secret place, where do your thoughts go? Do you long for God? When you wake up in the morning, do you think, good morning, Lord, thanks for another day to serve you? Or do you roll over and check your email? I, I know it's tempting, right? And I'm just going to go about my life. In the secret thoughts, what are you thinking? Are you thinking, God, how can I please you in this situation? Do you delight in his law? When you think through the rules of God, does it make you happy? Does it make you excited about the opportunity there? Or do you want to run away from it? Do you think, ah, why does he have to be such a spoil sport? I don't like this. I don't like doing this. Do we resist it? Can you tolerate sin in your life? If there's something that you know is not in alignment with God's law, are you just okay with that? You just accept it. Now, for those who know the law, for those who understand what God expects of us, but don't long to obey it, I can only come up with two reasons. One is that you simply don't know grace. You actually have not received the grace of Christ. You might not be a Christian. And therefore, that's why you're not trying to live up to God's law. What I want to say to you today is, look closely again at the Lord. Look at what he has done for you. Read the law as though you have to obey it, and then recognize you can't, and realize what he's done out of love for you. That he took that cross in your place. That was your sin he took. And recognize how gracious that is. Repent of your sin, turn to him, and your life will change. You have to invite him onto the inside. And when you invite him in, he will come into your life, will change it, and it will be infinitely better. Now, for those who actually have received grace, but are still uh, not lining up with, with God's ways, well, Jesus actually, I mean, it's, it's clear that that is possible, first of all, because in this passage, he says, uh, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I do want to point out that person is in the kingdom of heaven. So it's not about a heaven or hell issue. It's about an obedience issue, and it's about greatness, where I started this thing. It's about being least or being great. And God is inviting us. He wants us to pursue greatness. So what I figure is, you're indulging a love affair with a specific sin. That's the only reason you wouldn't want to pursue God's laws. There is something that is lying to you saying, this will give you life. And you've bought the lie, at least for a while. Ask yourself, is it giving you life or not? And you will inevitably see it is not. His way is better. In keeping his word, we find life. So what to do with that? Repent right now. Confess it right now. Even before we get to the confession, which we do every Sunday morning, you can confess it and he'll forgive you. Even before we get to that moment. Confess it quickly. Be quick to turn. Worshiping him is so much better. If you delight in God's law, take comfort. If you do line up with this, take comfort. You're called great in the kingdom of heaven. And you're building your house on a rock and it will not fall when the storm comes. And it will come. Remember this. Grace always 
precedes growth. By God's grace, may we grow into his likeness. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for this opportunity, once again, to sit at the feet of your scriptures. I pray for each one of us this day that you would give us a holy excitement to walk with you, to become like you. And I thank you that you first loved us so that we could love you back. And you command those who love you to obey your commands. So help us to do it, please, for we ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.